For those who were here last week, we are doing the Luke travel narrative, which goes from the end of Luke 9 all the way to Luke 19. Last week we did, What Shall I Do to Inherit Eternal Life? And the answer to that, by the way, was love God, love your neighbor, or love your neighbor, love God, is the order that it was done in. So the parable of the Good Samaritan and Martha and Mary are love your neighbor and love God, respectively, and then give to the poor and follow Yeshua. What we're going to do tonight is going to do prayer. That's going to give us the friend at midnight and the poem of the father giving gift to the child. And then we're going to pick up the unjust judge and the Pharisee and the publican. So those are bookends about prayer. And as I have said before, I'm using Kenneth Bailey's outline on this. The right content of prayer is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord gives you a model prayer, and we'll discuss that in more detail in a minute. And then the assurance of prayer, which is the friend at midnight and the Father's gifts. We'll go over all those in detail. And then on the other side of the chiastic structure, the assurance of prayer is the unjust judge, and then the right attitude in prayer is the Pharisee and the tax collector. So what you have is what's right according to Yeshua. First is the right content, and the last is the right attitude. And then in between, you have the assurance of the efficacy of prayer. That's going to be, God willing, what we'll cover tonight. So the friend at midnight is Luke 11, 5 through 13. And that, of course, is preceded by the Lord's Prayer. Let's go back and read it then. So I'm in Luke 11. Now Yeshua was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Now a couple of things about that. Obviously, Yeshua was praying, which he does frequently, and his disciples saw him in prayer, and they want to be taught how to pray. And one of the things that tells you is prayer is a skill that can be learned. Most people, when they think about prayer, visualize this sort of hyper-spiritual thing that comes over you, and some people got it and some people don't, just upwelling spiritual experience, and sometimes it can be. But it's also just a skill. We talk a lot about prayer here in the congregation from various perspectives, but understand that when you pray, it isn't necessary or even typical that you're going to get Holy Ghost goosebumps all over you. Most of the time, it's just a conversation between you and God And quite frankly, you don't often get a lot of feedback that he's listening. So the idea here that this is a skill that can be taught indicates that it's something that you can learn how to do regardless of what feedback you get from God. Now, I'm not going to go into a long riff about why God doesn't always apparently answer prayer or you don't always apparently hear from him other than to say that If you did always hear from him and he did always answer prayer, God would become your celestial slot machine or your celestial candy machine or, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. Because what you would wind up doing is saying, hey, God, need a parking place. Hey, God, need 50 bucks to buy something. Hey, God, need. And that would become your attitude. And that's just because we're human good, bad, or indifferent. It's just people behave that way. 
and this is genealogy. One of the reasons I think that God doesn't always respond to you when you pray is because it wouldn't be good for you. You'd never develop any faith if every time you prayed, your ham sandwich showed up in your right hand. But you understand what I'm saying. In other words, not only do I want a ham sandwich, but I want it to be all right to have a ham sandwich, and I want you to give it to me, God. So that's part of the reason why I think God doesn't always touch you when you pray. The point that I'm making here is prayer is a skill that you can learn and that you should practice even and especially when you don't seem to be getting answers. The other thing that happens, of course, is as you pray, it changes things in the universe, and prayers more often than not do get answered, but they don't typically get answered immediately, and they often don't get answered in a way that you recognize until long after. And I think all of that is for our benefit. In other words, our tendency would be to treat God like a celestial candy machine if it was much more direct than that. Verse 2, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. There are obviously other versions of this in scripture. Um, some of them add, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory and so forth. We'll just go with the one here in Luke because that's the one that's in front of us. Which isn't to say that he didn't say all of them. You know, when several people listen to the same conversation, they don't always write it down the same way. Okay, so I'll unpack that. First off, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. In other words, asking and inviting him to rule. And one of the things that happens is God has given us dominion over the place. God only knows why he did it, but he did. And so for him to be here, he has to be invited. Because one of the things that you'll see in Scripture, for example, is, I believe it's Ezekiel, who, during one of his visions, is in the temple. And he sees the presence of God leave. And the reason it's left is because Israel drove it out by their behavior. So the idea that God can be pushed away is, in fact, scriptural. So what you're doing is you're inviting him to come near and you're inviting him to take rulership. Verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. So you're asking him for sustenance and support. Forgive us our sins. Notice that this is Yeshua telling his disciples, his Talmudim, how to pray. And again, he is assuming by this prayer that they, in fact, will have sins that need to be forgiven. So that's the guys that are going to turn out to be the apostles. And they have problems just like everybody else does. And then, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us, one of the things that God has is a balance. And what he says is, by the measure that you use, it will be measured out to you. So if you are not going to forgive your friend, don't come to me for forgiveness because the measure that you use is going to be the measure that I use. So if you're a forgiving person, I will be a forgiving God. If you are not a forgiving person, then toward you, I will not be a forgiving God. And then lead us not into temptation. And one of the things that God does 
to people in Scripture is he tests them. And he puts them in situations where they have the opportunity not to succeed. I personally don't want to be Job. That's not duty I'm volunteering for. Job is one of the heroes of faith. He made the entire book of the Bible. God trusted Job with his own reputation. Satan says that if I mess with this guy, he'll curse you to your face. That's his only one. So here's this guy Job down here, and he's got the reputation of God in his hands. I don't want that kind of temptation. I am sure that I will be tempted, and I am frequently. So now we have the proper content of prayer. So he sort of touches all the bases. And this is a liturgical prayer. In other words, it's a set prayer. So now we get to the parable. And the parable is by way of explaining the prayer. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Let's unpack that. So here's the structure. It's in two parts. The first part I've got labeled as what will not happen. And then the second part I have labeled what will happen. And within these two halves, there are similar chiastic structures. First, you have a request, give me three loaves. A reason for the request, because I have a friend that's coming to visit, an appeal to duty. What's the appeal for duty? I have a friend that's come, but I have nothing to set before him. Duty refused? I'm sorry, the kids are in bed, the door's locked, I've washed my feet, not going to do it. And then finally, the request is refused. When they say what will not happen, lots of you have been through this, some of you may not have. The culture in that part of the world is when a guest comes into town, entertainment of the guest is the responsibility of the whole community. So the person in whose house that guest is lodging is merely the representative of the rest of the community. For example, when somebody comes into a village he is greeted, you have honored our village by coming and joining us, not you have honored me. So the deal is the hospitality extended to this guy is the village responsibility, and the guy who is actually the one in whose house the stranger is lodging has a call on all the resources of the community in order to show this guy proper hospitality. That's sort of thing one. And, oh, by the way, the request that this guy is making is far less than what is eventually going to be required to entertain this guest. You've got a really nice pitcher to pour water and wine out of. I need to borrow your pitcher. You have got the best olives in town. We're going to need some olives for this dinner. You have got a fine rug that we can lay down that this guy can sit on. I need to borrow your rug. 
So what he'll do is he'll go around the village and he'll collect the best of everything and set it before this guest so that he can entertain him in the best fashion the village is capable of putting on. And everybody understands that. And they're going to get their rug back and they're going to get their pitcher back and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of making a fast lap through the village to put together a spread for a guest is done to this day. The other thing is the minimal thing to set before a guest is bread and salt. And if you set bread and salt before him and nothing else, that sort of indicates you're all starving. And under no circumstances would you serve him leftover bread from your own meal. You need a full, fresh loaf. People would know who has recently baked bread. Everybody doesn't bake bread every day. So the idea here is I haven't baked bread today. The only bread I've got in the house is the leftovers from what we had for our evening meal. That is not acceptable to set before a guest. I know that your wife baked bread today. I need three loaves. Understand that the very concept of this guy saying no is not going to happen. And Yeshua is saying it in the context of, all right, can anybody imagine having a friend that would do something like this? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. Nobody can imagine having a friend like that. That's the context of this. And there's a lot of cultural context that we don't necessarily know. Remember I said in the Good Samaritan, the priest is riding a donkey. That isn't something that you know from the story, but everybody would know it from the context because in that culture at that time, a man of that status traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho would be riding a donkey. Nobody is going to refuse hospitality like that. And the guy wouldn't go to this door if he didn't know that he had three loaves of bread and he wouldn't go if he himself had three loaves. Let's go on. So now the second half is what will happen. And he will answer the request and he will get up and not for friendship's sake. And now here we have a translation thing and I am going with Bailey's scholarship on this. If you go here in verse 8, I tell you though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. The implication is we can't imagine having a friend that would do this. But even if he wouldn't do it out of friendship, he will do it because of word. And there are different translations in your Bibles. This one is impudence, which is to say you keep banging on the door. Others will say persistence. Bailey's opinion is that those are both not good translations. And the question goes back to the Greek. And I don't have the Greek in front of me, but there's a Greek letter difference between two words. What it is, according to Bailey, is avoidance of shame. So if this guy, in fact, tells the one knocking on his door, take a hike, my kids are in bed, I'm not going to get up, I've washed my feet, go away, the next day, Everybody in the village is going to know that this guy didn't fulfill his part of the obligation of the village to entertain the traveler. And he will be ostracized. 
Everybody in the village will let him know that they are not pleased with his behavior. So Bailey's opinion is the word there should have been, even if he won't do it because he's your friend, he will certainly do it to avoid the shame that would come upon him if he didn't. That's Kenneth Bailey's translation. It's not even a translation. He has substituted a different Greek word, and his rationale for that is it looks like a scribal error because there's a one-letter difference between persistence that we have and avoidance of shame, which I just said. His comment is in that culture, it makes more sense that way. To avoid being dishonored, he will do that even if he wouldn't do it because you're his friend. It makes more sense to me that way. And why do I say that? Remember we're talking about prayer. And in our little vignette here, you have the guy standing outside and knocking who is in the position of a petitioner. And you have the guy inside with the bread who is in the position of God. So if the translation is as all your translations have, what the lesson then is, if God says no, if you keep nagging him long enough, he'll change his mind. And I don't particularly think that's good theology, which is why I like Bailey's explanation better. Do with that whatever you want. The, the, the scripture says what the scripture says, and I just don't happen to like it. And Bailey's take on this is this is the assurance of prayer. You can't imagine a friend behaving this way, and by implication, what on earth makes you think God would behave that way? That's the theological lesson here. So next thing we're going to go to is Father's nature. And this is by way of a poem. I'm in verse 9. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now notice, we've changed. He's morphed now from bread, and by the sense of the parable, the assurance that your prayers will be heard, he's then continuing in the motive of a child asking for substance from his father, and then all of a sudden he switches around and we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Everybody see the morph that's been done there? The structure of the prayer is ask, seek, knock. And then ask, seek, knock. It happens twice. So ask, it'll be given. Seek, it'll find. Knock, it'll be open. Ask, you'll receive. Who seeks, finds. And then knock, it'll be opened. Then you have the three characteristics of a father. And then finally, sort of this rabbinic heavy and light. If you who are evil can give good things, how much more then will the father who is good give the Holy Spirit. What is the power source of God? The Holy Spirit is the power source of God. In other words, Yeshua, when he did miracles and signs and wonders, did them by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you're asking for stuff that is in your experience. We need bread. We need fish. We need all those kinds of things. All these things we need. 
And you're talking about that, and what God then does is turns around and says, I will give you the power source that gets all those things. We'll pick up the second half of this chiasm next time, and we should be able to get a little farther. Et ta